Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Founder Hour podcast. And this podcast is brought to you by Outer. Outer makes the world's most beautiful, comfortable, innovative, and high-quality outdoor furniture, all from sustainable materials, and is the only outdoor furniture with a patented built-in cover to make protecting it effortless. From teak chairs to fire pit tables, everything Outer makes has the look and feel of what you'd expect at a five-star resort for less than you'd pay at a big box store for something that won't last. Pat, and you know how much I love five-star resorts. Oh yeah, I do. And as you know, Pat and I spend a lot of time outdoors, and we love hanging out on our outer couches we're certain you'll love it too for a limited time get 10 percent off and free shipping at liveouter.com this is outer's best offer anywhere anywhere only available to the founder hour listeners get 10 percent off and free shipping at live o-u-t-e-r let me say that again for all you alphabet geeks live O-U-T-E-R dot com slash the founder hour. That's liveouter.com slash the founder hour. Terms and conditions apply. Hey everyone, before we get into the episode, just a quick reminder, if you enjoy what you hear, please follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. That way you get notified when new episodes drop. You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, at the founder hour. Let's get into it. Our guest today is Anne Wojcicki. Anne is an innovative biologist and the co-founder and CEO of personal genomics company 23andMe. In 2006, Anne saw a need for creating a way to generate more personalized information so that commercial and academic researchers could better understand and develop new drugs and diagnostics. The result was 23andMe, which provides genetic testing for individuals curious about their ancestry and genetic makeup. It was named Invention of the Year by Time Magazine in 2008, and in 2013, the Fast Company named Anne the most daring CEO. We spoke with Anne all about her upbringing and the story of how 23andMe came to be. Here we go. Talk to us a little bit about, you know, where you were born and and what young Anne was like. Oh, wow. You're going way back. Way back. You're going to the very beginning. Well, no, the very uh, beginning would be like the Haplo groups. We're not going there yet. <laughs> we'll, we'll dive into that later, but. <laughs> I would be a first. Um, okay, so the very beginning. Um, young Anne was born on Stanford campus. Um, my father is a, a professor of physics, and my mother was a journalist and a high school teacher. Um, so I grew up, I was in a really lucky environment. Like I, I have to say, I really, um, am grateful for how I got to grow up, but I lived in the Stanford community and it was in a designated housing area. So, um, everyone kind of moved in at the same time. Mm. And that meant that like, there was a lot of people who were the same age as my parents and there was a lot of kids my age. And so I had, my best friends were either four minutes or seven minutes away and I could walk around and you knew everyone's parents really well. Um, and you know, also people like faculty tend to not leave. Mm-hmm. So it was a very stable community. And it was also, it was a community of people who were doing like really interesting, different things, like interesting research projects. They could be researching, you know, mathematical concepts or, um, interesting ways of like, um, like understanding pain. My best friend's father was pioneering, um, novel antibody treatments for cancer. Um, and my other, um, best friend, her, her father was like, like, he's now one of the leaders in, um, 
you know, understanding environmental law. Mm. Like it was just like, everyone was curious. And so like the thing, when I think back on my childhood, what was like really great is like, I had, I was surrounded by people who were curious and constantly asking questions and not materialistic. Mm. Like it was really like, you just had this incredible appreciation for the experience. Um, so obviously then I also have my two sisters. They were part of my community and they were like the traditional sisters who like to make sure that you know that you're the youngest and that they are better. Yeah. <laughs> and we're all very like, we're, we're all very close now. Um, but it was, like I said, I, I, I grew up in a, in a great environment full of curiosity. Yeah. And, and aside from the curiosity, I mean, growing up in that environment, what kind of things, other things were you exposed to that perhaps kind of helped you along your path as you got older and started to go to college and that kind of stuff? Well, one of the most meaningful things, like my mother is, um, like you should have my mother on your podcast. Like my mom is the founder of you. (laughs) (laughs) My mom is, my mom's such an unusual person, but my mom is one of these people, um, who just knows how to get things done. Like I, like it started with like very simple things that were like really annoying where she would like come and decide to vacuum my room at 6am. And she was just like, I'd be screaming, get out, get out, get out. And she just keeps doing it, doing, doing. And then she closes the door. She's just like one of those people, like she doesn't listen Mm. and she just gets done what she wants to get done. So Mm. a good example is like she, there was an empty lot near our house and she wanted to build a park. And like most people will just like pontificate like, oh, it would be so nice to have a park in our area. My mom was just like, we're going to build a park. Like I'm going to city hall. I'm going to make the argument. I'm going to get money and I'm going to build it. And like a year later, we had a park. Like my mom. It's like parks my mom, and rec. And that like from like my simplest parts of my childhood, like my mom has an idea and she just does it. Like she makes things happen or she'll say, like, I remember my mom saying, you should get scholarships for college. And she's like, here's a book. We're going to read all these things, what you're going to apply for. And I'm sure you'll get at least one. Mm. And she was just totally right. She was just like, you know, like the world is full of opportunity. You, it's like, you have to seize it. And she's just amazing. What gave her that mindset? Well, my mom is, um, I mean, it's interesting because she didn't, her parents were not like that. So my mom's an immigrant or around parents are immigrants. My mom grew up um, poor in East LA and she had this traumatic experience where um, her little brother ate a bottle of aspirin when he was 18 months old Oh man! and they went from hospital to hospital and nobody would take him because they couldn't show proof of payment. And Um, they finally got someone to take him, and then they called in the morning and they said, he's in the morgue. And my mom, like she, she was five years old at the time. And she's like, look, from that moment, I just realized like, if you don't take care of yourself, no one will. Hmm. And you have to learn how to advocate for yourself. So my mom is like fierce at advocating for yourself. And like one of the things that I find very humorous now is that my childhood medical record came with a warning handwritten at the top that said, um, quote, as all of us in pediatrics know, this mother can be quite irrational at times. (laughs) And I think about like my mom is one of those people, like she challenged 
everything. Like, why? Like, why are you doing this? Why are you doing that? And she has, honestly, like, there's lots of cases where she insisted, like, something either happened or something not happened, and she was right. Mm. Um, So I do think that that experience from her brother dying made her somebody who said, if you don't, if you don't own it, it's never going to happen. And I think that led to her, like she ended up going, she was in a conservative Jewish family. She got herself scholarships to Berkeley. She graduated really quickly. Like she made, she figured out that like, you're in charge of your own life and you're in charge of building what you want. And she's just is really unstoppable. Mm. She's an amazing doer. Did that ever get like to a point that it was like too much for you and your sisters? Like it was just like, you know, I assume like somebody like that is always on, always questioning, always driving you guys to push yourselves even further. Like, did that get exhausting where you're like, mom, just, just let us live. Just like relax for a little bit. <laughs> I mean, that is, you should join our family dinner because we often like we, my mom, we love to harass my mother because she's always on and she's <laughs> always, um, She's like I said, it's hard to control her. Like it's even like one of those jokes. Like if I go on vacation and I have to like make it really clear to my mom, like don't touch my garden, but it doesn't matter what I say. When I come back, I know my mom's going to like plant things and yeah. do things that I didn't ask her to do. Yeah. You're like, um, Jesus turned water into wine. Your mom turned roses into daffodils. You're like, what, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I think it's, you know, I have to say there was times, um, like the the main thing that was like challenging as a child is that my mom can be really embarrassing, hmm. and because my That's mom the most is one embarrassing of those people, like things she did. Like we'll make it very clear. Like we go to a restaurant and she doesn't like something and she doesn't believe she's going to pay for it. Hmm. Like this is a good example. Like I we're not short on funds these days, and we go to like a really nice hotel in Paris. And I come downstairs and I find my mom like yelling at the hotel manager about how insane it is that she has to pay for the wi-fi and she's not going to pay for it and then she was like you should see the cost of this hotel and we are not going to pay for this and um i love that uh, you know, i love that she hasn't lost that kind of inner immigrant. fire yeah yeah immigrant yeah oh yeah yeah no not at not at all i mean i think i would love for my parents to be slightly less cheap my dad <laughs> i always joked he's the only person i know i'll upgrade him to business class and he will go to the desk and downgrade himself. Um, <laughs> Let <laughs> us know when he's flying. We'll switch like seats with him. <laughs> so, <laughs> Don't worry, like we'll that. take it. Just, in, just in, enjoy it. Yeah. Um, so, no, I mean, I think that I, I have an appreciation, and I think like my mom's also kind of taught me that, like in general, in relationships, everyone's good at something, mm. and no one likes to be controlled, and you let people be them. And Mm. my mom is one of those people where she's just going to complain. She has a lot of enthusiasm. You kind of just need to channel it in the right direction. Yeah. Was there that kind of typical kind of immigrant parent thing of like, you need to go down this path or that path and this like pressure to be perhaps a doctor or a lawyer or something like that? Or was it a little bit more like, you know, find what you love type of thing? My parents' only requirement was really that we were engaged, um, which I'm really grateful for. Like they didn't, you know, they didn't say like, oh, you have to get all A's and you have to do X and Y. Um, but they would say, like my mom always made it clear, like their path to a better life was education. Mm-hmm. 
that my mom made it clear as well as like your path to a good life is like making sure that your foundation is strong and that you're taking advantage of all these things that you get as a kid that frankly you don't get once you're older, like the luxury of learning and the luxury of going to college and like having all these people who want to teach you. So my parents kind of had more of that mentality is that you like learning is really, really exciting and you should like jump into the things that you're interested in. Mm -hmm. Um, so they were, they were good that way. And when there was things that we weren't terribly interested in, they were okay with that. Like my mom, like I, I'm like, I was just talking about, like, I'm not good at languages and my sister, one of my sisters is very good at languages. Like, so I did, you know, they were okay. They realized like, I'm not, I don't want to go and take tons of languages, but, um, I love biology. And how did you figure that out? How did you kind of, how did you that you love biology, like where, at what point did you start realizing like, this is something that I really want to pursue? Uh, you know, I think things as like, again, part of one of the things I try to do with my kids even is like, you just expose them to a lot and you see what they like. So we had a lot of national geographic magazines and time magazines. And I remember very clearly the moment that my mom, she was saying something to my sister. She was talking about her jeans and I was confused because she was wearing shorts. And I was like, mom, like what, like, what are you talking about? Like what jeans, what jeans? And I remember like being little, like holding her shirt and like pulling and saying like, what jeans, what jeans? And then she was explaining, it was like, like, oh, it's like, you know, jeans, like, again, like it's within your cells and it like makes, it programs you, makes you, you. And I was like a little bit, almost like taken aback, like, like what? Like there's like a secret code inside me. And it makes me me and it's like doing things and we don't understand it. Like why, like, like why has not this not been like brought to my attention before? Mm. Like it was, it was so fascinating to me, that concept of like, uh, like a, a code, like the instructions. Um, and then I remember there's this national geographic and that's when I was talking about the magazines, like, I remember reading this one story and again, it's from the eighties and they would do these studies occasionally about uh, identical twins separated at birth. Yep. And I could not get enough of it. Mm. Like I just wanted to like read about like, what was it like, you know, these twin sites, like what were they like? What was similar? What was different? What was genes? What was environment? Like that concept of like gene and environment and that you could potentially alter your environment to optimize for your genes. Like that's so cool. Um, and I just like, and I always thought about like, there's this movement in Silicon Valley today of like, you know, longevity and living forever. And I never had that kind of mindset, but it was really more about how do you avoid, like, how are you healthy as long as possible? Mm-hmm, right. Like if you have these instructions in you, you must know like what's, what's a good environment for you. Mm-hmm. And so I always just became super interested in that. And my, my best friends both love like, um, you know, environmental biology, like they love animals and like the environment. And I was like, no, no, no. I love everything that you can't physically see. Mm. Mm. And I just like, I, I just think it's, it's like, you know, like you go to New York city and you're almost blown away by the spectacularness of like the complexity, but like your cell is like a, you know, significantly more complex version of New York city and you can't see it and it's in you. Mm. It just threw so it back cool. to like my AP bio 
which I got a one on the exam. But uh, oh, I just we should we talk. We should talk and take another bio class. Yeah, but like it was like the adenine, thymine, yeah, cytosine, oh, yeah. guanine. Oh, yeah. Don't do it to me. Okay, that's all I got <laughs> right. But I was like banking on that I being think, the majority. But of I think tests. see that's part of it is like maybe the education system. I don't think that always does a great job of share, sharing that fascinating stuff with you. Like, I oh, I think like, it does an awful job. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like we did like I, it does an awful job, like textbooks and all that are not fun. Like I remember my friends, my best friends and I in high school, we did a visual rep, like a, a theatrical representation of the electron transport chain. See, that's cool. That's, that's and, cool. Yeah. And it was just like, then you could envision it, like how your electrons pass down and like, and it's all of your friends, like the goofy and that silly. And frankly, like one of the things that my mom does really well, my mom is very atypical like to this day she's 83 or 84 and she like dresses she buys her clothes at forever 21 she's like always she's always out like partying to like like one in the morning she's like she's super fun Mm. and i and she was a high school teacher for years and she brought that mentality like i remember she had an exercise bike in her classroom and she was like some kids just need to bike when they are, you know, learning. Like, it's like normal. What's wrong with that? Like, some kids need to move. Some kids don't. Like, she was super accepting. Yeah. And I think I um, I just I just realized, like, the fun, you want to bring that fun into science. And that actually did impact so much of 23andMe is, like, it's a beautiful, like, understanding the beauty of, like, how the world is working. Mm-hmm. You don't need all these big terms. Like, you don't even need to, like, have yeah. all the names for it. Like, just understanding the concepts mm-hmm. is so cool. It is. So, and you studied bio at Yale. How was that mm-hmm. experience like for you? Interesting. Like, I loved, um, I loved biology. Um, I discovered kind of there, it actually was, there was things that were really good and things that were not so good. I discovered there that the people who were pre-meds did not have the love of biology. They had the pursuit of call of like a medical, medical school. school admissions. Yeah. yeah. And it was interesting because having grown up in an academic environment where it was like very much about that pursuit of education and just knowledge for the sake, like being with people who just cared about their grade. And it was like about like, I must, master this um but not really interested was like it was not a fun like that those classes were not terribly fun mm-hmm. um because what i wanted to do was like i i don't know i was just like interested in it and i loved it and i loved working in a lab and the people that i worked with i worked with in sid altman's lab um and i loved the one on one with people i loved like having that time for people to like really explain what was going on the process of doing experiments. I discovered I'm not great at like in the lab. Um, I'm more big picture than I am detail, like running assays every 30 seconds. I was kind of like, oh, 30 seconds, 35 seconds, 40 <laughs> seconds. Does it really matter? Yeah. Um, so I realized like those, <laughs> I, the, I wasn't, I wasn't great with my precision, but I loved, I loved the lab environment. I loved the team. I was like the only one who had the decorated lab bench. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Yale, I think taught me a lot that like, I love the big picture concepts, but I didn't like the student environment of pre-meds. Right. And frankly, actually one of the best things is when I graduated and I took this job investing, it was like kind of resurfaced my incredible love for it because 
I was investing in all these biotech companies and spending all this time like researching and digging in and like on a one-on-one basis with different CEOs and chief medical officers and chief research officers, like understanding the complement system, understanding antibodies and cancer, understanding gene therapy. Mm-hmm. And I just, it was like the the greatest thing I, I I could have possibly imagined. I think I saw at some point you did want to go to medical school yourself, right? Or or no? Mm-hmm. I always thought about, I mean, because I was on, you know, it's a little bit of the, um, you know, like the environment I knew was either you were in academics or you were like a physician right. or a lawyer. Like I didn't know that there were really a lot of other jobs. Right. And um, when I... And so I always thought I would do an MD PhD, but it never fully felt right. And so again, to my mom's credit, she sent me to a job fair. So when I graduated high school, it's like on the couch, I was working as a nanny and um, she sent me to this job fair in San Jose. And it was the first time like I walked around and I was like, you could get a job at NASA. Like mm-hmm. they take entry level people or I could work at a bank in doing healthcare work. Like I never thought of that or... Like I at Boeing, I was like, I, I was kind of blown away because I didn't know, because I was in that academic bubble, I didn't know there were people, like, I didn't know what a real job looked like. Right. And, and so that job fair um, was amazing. And so out of that, I decided I was going to temp. Like I took these temp jobs at different places and I was just like two weeks here, two weeks there. Mm-hmm. And I realized a lot of things I did not want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but through one of those temporary jobs at a bank, they sent my resume to an investment group. And um, and I remember talking to my dad because I originally was like, why would I do investing? That sounds so weird. And I talked to my dad and he's like, look, I think you could really, like, it'd be really interesting. You could learn a lot. Like it's different. You'd be in New York City. And kind of that pursuit of the curiosity is like, hey, like I'm only 20, like who, like I could do lots of things. Um, And it's one of the things I try to like encourage young people now is like, it doesn't really matter what your first few jobs are. Just do anything that makes you learn. A lot of people have this mindset, like one track mind of like, oh, I need to do this and then this and then this and then this. And like, that's the path that is supposed to, just the way it's supposed to be, right? Like I have to go to medical school in order to you know, justify me going and getting a bio degree or something, but they don't, you don't realize that there's so many other options that you miss along the way that if, if you don't pay attention and like also be open to, or just be flexible. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I saw that with a lot of my friends and I think that was one of the things that I, that did not resonate with me because I've always, because again, my parents had kind of that sense of curiosity and my mom, especially being sort of slightly atypical, Um, like I always felt like, like you should, you should find something that you really just love. And there's absolutely some people who are like, I am like, I dream of being a doctor and this is what I want to do. And it's like the right thing for them to just totally be focused. And like you go through and it's like what they love. And then there's some people who feel like that pressure, like, oh, I can't take off time or you can't take a break or you have to do one of those things. And now that I'm turning 50, um, and I see with all my friends, like there's a lot of my friends who look back and they're like, wow, I like, I never got to take off time. Yeah. And I'm at this point now with like kids and mortgages and stuff like you can't ever get that break. And um, I had this very defining experience where I went actually when I was in college still, and I was, went to a job fair and it was actually at one of the large banks. And I remember I like took the train up from Yale to New York city and um, 
and it was like going through the investment banking world. And I remember asking this guy, I was like, well, what would you like, what would you do with a biology person? Like, I want to go to med school at some point, like I'd come here for two years and then like go off and go back to med school. And I remember he, he pulled me aside and he pointed out the window. He's like, see that apartment right there? That apartment's mine. He's like, once you come in, you'll never leave. He's like, the money is so good. Mm-hmm. And, and he was telling me, he's like, I dreamed of being a, like a literary publisher one day. He's like, but now I do like corporate publishing. Like, I'm never leaving. The money traps you. And I remember like for other people that would have been at, like a selling point of like, oh, I want that apartment too. And I couldn't run out there fast enough. I was like, I will never be in one of those people. I will never be trapped by money. I will never be like you. Like, I never want to be trapped in that way. Uh-huh. And if anything, that actually pushed me to say, like, I'm going to go and do things to make sure that, like, I want to explore. I want to do the things that I love. Right. And I never want to get trapped. And the most important thing I think that my parents, they taught me curiosity, but I think one of the most important things that they actually taught me was how to be financially responsible. Mm. And big, big to, to know, teach your kids. There's a well, there's a difference of like also how to invest and all of those things. And there's like a world of like how do you actually not spend? And my parents gave incredible rigor to like, how do you know how to go out to dinner and like have a minimal fee? Or how do you actually make sure that you're saving a thousand dollars a month? And that allowed me to have the freedom and that that confidence to say, I'm going to take a job then like have that has like, I have no experience in and I'm going to have risk. And that's the freedom that also allowed me to quit those jobs and say, I'm going to take off a year to travel or I'm going to go and do these things. Mm-hmm. But having freedom, especially financial freedom and knowing how to manage your money is like such an incredible skill for taking risk. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 100%. Um, I was wondering at this point if you know, going off and starting a business and like this concept of entrepreneurship was even in your head. Oh yeah. I will. I mean, I never thought about, I mean, for me, it was like, it wasn't entrepreneurship for the sake of entrepreneurship. It was like very similar to my mom and that example of the park. Yeah. It was like, there's absolutely things I want to get done. So you start them. What were some of those things? Oh, like in high school, um, I wanted to ski, but I didn't have the money. So we started ski trip businesses. Did I read you were a figure skater? You were like a pretty, you were like. I was a figure skater. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I did that too. Like I didn't have, I didn't have money to skate. So there's two things. Like one, I used to sneak in the back door and they used to remind me sometimes that like I have to pay to skate, uh, which is why I donate money to them now. Um, And so um, I, but then my, my um, ice skating teacher was a single mom. So I just traded babysitting for lessons. Nice. And then there was a, um, there was a annual fundraising competition and I would win it every year to get my ice skates. Mm -hmm. So like, that was kind of like my mom's mentality of just being scrappy. Like, how do you actually figure out how you get things done? So I think back on those things, like that was very entrepreneurial. Like instead of just saying like, oh, my parents won't buy me skates. Mm -hmm. I was like, like, I'll figure out how to get my own skates. Like (laughs) I don't need you to buy me skates right. i can figure it out and that sense of independence like i don't really care like i'm going to make it happen regardless of whatever you say right so i'm sure i'm jumping a few years here so if you need to set the stage for us feel free to take it back but what inspired the idea for 23 and me mm-hmm. well i think 
you know, a couple of things. Like one, um, I did spend, so I ended up going to Wall Street. I spent 10 years investing in healthcare companies. Mm -hmm. And like I said, like, I loved it. Like the idea that I could spend time with like a chief medical officer, like head of science, like all these famous individuals, all these CEOs, like I spent 10 years just like, you know, like in in. the greatest, yeah, just like soaking in like the most amazing science. And at the same time, I spent a lot of time also looking at things like the hospital systems and insurance and you start to realize how decisions are made in the healthcare system. And a little bit harking back to my mom and her, her experience with her brother, you know, healthcare is fundamentally a business and it's like, not just a business, it's the business in the United States and it is the largest sector. um, And it's an incredibly profitable business. And you realize that like you being healthy is not a business. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like if you successfully never um, have heart disease, never have diabetes, never have any kind of health condition that you don't make money for the system. Mm-hmm. Like you don't generate it. And my sister who is a epidemiologist in obesity, she um, would give this talk about obesity in the coming crisis. Mm-hmm. And like we all, everyone like you guys right now, like everyone shakes their head, like obesity is a crisis. It's going to like hurts all these things. It hurts people. It hurts the economy, all of this. Um, and then I would stand up and I would give this talk. I was like, obesity, the ultimate moneymaker. <laughs> like obesity is not just about obesity. It's about heart disease, diabetes, like long-term chronic disease people. Like this means ka-ching, ka-ching, ka-ching. Like 20, 30 years of like ongoing money, cash flow, diet. Like you can do all kinds of like dialysis roll-ups. You can put a net present value on people with kidney problems. Like, I mean, you could do all these things. I was like, so much so that you can buy ETFs in obesity. Crazy. Like get in now. And, and people would look at me like you're evil. And I was like, no, I just represent the system. And people don't realize how much the healthcare system is this system filled with really good people, but the ship is fundamentally pointing in the wrong way. Mm -hmm. So people are just rowing and like you, like doctors, like it's part of the burnout, like people want to make a difference. Mm. And they're not, they're not in a system that's set up to do that. So 23andMe really came out of the idea that like, I was super frustrated, the fact that me being healthy is not like, it's not the end goal of the healthcare world. And I, um, I was inspired by, so it was again in the nineties when there was the whole HIV epidemic and there was a group called Project Inform and um, all of the various HIV activists, gay men's health uh, crisis center, like all these groups and these patient advocates who were amazing and they were angry and they didn't just like have walks and fundraise. They stormed the FDA. They threw red paint on GSK they were like, they got educated about clinical trial design. They got educated about the science and then they demanded like very specific types of results, not just like, Hey, raise more money. And I wanted to have that kind of energy for all of us with respect to all of our healthcare. Mm -hmm. And the beauty of like having, like seeing the like Google start and Flickr and the web 2.0 world, I was like, Oh my God, you can suddenly put that enthusiasm online Mm -hmm. 
because there's not a single person on this planet who doesn't suffer in healthcare in some way. So it's a universal. So how do I energize the entire world to come together and say, we can actually all be healthier and have better outcomes if we come together. Mm -hmm. But it has to be us because we all have the same incentives and the healthcare system is fundamentally a different system. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, we could go a different direction here because I know this was the question about the inspiration for 23andMe and I understand the inspiration. But one thing that you know I think about when I think about the healthcare system and what you just said is that it's not about the people in the system, right? You think about folks and entrepreneurs that set out to change the world or to change the way things are done or to better the way things are done. In this instance, you are literally fighting the biggest corporation, like the insurance companies. You're fighting the government, right? Like you're fighting against, especially specifically in America and the United States, these are, this is how things have been done. And so yeah. unless the system is completely just, I don't even want to say changed, like it's got to completely be demolished almost, and then rebuilt. reinvented from yeah. the ground up. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, right, so yeah. it's like the best tea up imaginable. So yeah. the, the whole, like my, I had this one moment when I decided to start 23 Me, where yeah. I was actually in this ballroom mm -hmm. in DC and it was a conference about billing coding. And I walk in mm. and it's like, it's like this massive ballroom. Everyone's wearing a dark suit. And I was like, thousands of people are here to learn about how to optimize billing codes. Meaning like when you go in for knee surgery, how do you try to get $13,000 out of that surgery rather than $12,000? Like how do you milk it for more money? And my epiphany was like, healthcare is never going to change from within. Mm -hmm. If you want healthcare to be different, you do have to be entirely outside. Yeah. So if you look at the structure of 23andMe, part of the controversy of 23andMe is that we're entirely outside the system. Mm -hmm. So I'm direct to consumer. I go directly to, to people. I'm not through a physician. I'm not through a healthcare practitioner. I'm very proudly not HIPAA compliant. I have successfully managed to avoid most of the red tape. So we had the FDA issue, which was like the, the, like the big, um, you know, issue in 2012, mm -hmm. 2013. So that like definitely drew us in, but part of that controversy was specifically because 23andMe is entirely outside the system. And my win with the FDA is that we successfully proved out that we can stay outside the system, meaning mm -hmm. I can continue to be direct to consumer. I successfully proved out that you are actually capable of getting this information without the oversight of right. a healthcare professional. Mm -hmm. And I do think that if you really want to change healthcare, people cannot expect it to change from within Yeah, because the incentives are never going to be aligned in that way. Never. So it has to be more and more of a direct to consumer world, which frankly is entirely outside of that existing healthcare world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so that's on the regulatory side, but on the direct, on the consumer side, did it take a while to sort of earn the trust of people of like, this is like a private company that I'm sending my information or data to. I don't know who they are. I don't know what they're going to do with it type of thing. Like, was that, I know you, I think it launched in 2007, right? Yeah. Five, six, seven, yeah. Um, mm -hmm. Like, did that, was that a hurdle at all that you had to get through? Uh, for sure. I mean, I think that you, it, one of the things I'm really proud about is brand and our, and our reputation for like how our customers perceive us. Um, and I do think that trust, 
um, is something that's not, you don't get that on day one, but you earn it. It's like, if you have kids, like you, like through experience and over time, you learn to trust them. And so my number one thing for people within the company was always to say, like, we're not going to, I'm not going to spend money on marketing about how you should trust us, but Mm -hmm. rather you're going to demonstrate with your actions about why people should trust us. And also our policies should represent that. Mm-hmm. So for instance, like 23andMe is very much set out to represent what is in your best interest. And it's everything that I do in the company is about how do I win? How am I transparent with you? And how do you have choice? So throughout, and I think those are two things that are like really like the the, the primary pain points for people in healthcare. Mm-hmm. Like, you go to the hospital and you don't really have choice and you have no transparency in what's going to happen, why things are happening. You're just at their mercy. I mean, you're just literally leaving, leaving it up to them. And you're saying you're the expert. All I can do is just trust you. Yeah. Completely. And I think that's where like those two elements are really key for me, choice and transparency in 23 me. And so I think that what's happened is like over time, we've kind of proven out to people that we are actually working for you. And frankly, the FDA fight that we had proved out that like, I wasn't just going to change my whole business plan and suddenly like comply and like follow the traditional, you know, um, you know, genetic test path. We fought the fight for like consumers to say, you actually have the right to get direct access. Mm -hmm. So I think through the experience that we've had, um, you know, we, the stories that we have, the customer stories, mm-hmm. how we've tried to act, um, you know, through our policies of making sure like you have the ability to opt into research, you have the ability always to opt out. We try to be really, really, uh, we try to be a good partner, like a genuine good partner to our customers. And I think what's also different for 23andMe than most other companies out there is I am direct to consumer. Like a pharma company doesn't sell their drugs to people. They sell it to a PBM, which eventually goes to you, but they don't have a direct relationship with their customer. You know, like even you go to a hospital, but your insurance company is paying, like they've kind of, the system has gotten so complicated that like, you're never actually, there's never a one-to-one relationship. There's always Mm -hmm. kind of this intermediary. And that makes it really hard to ever complain. And again, when I think back on my mom, like in some ways, like I'm trying to channel my mother here is like making it like, it's all about you know, a direct relationship to people and something that's genuinely going to be in your best interest. This episode is brought to you by More Than Profit. If you enjoy the Founder Hour, we think you'll enjoy this podcast too. It celebrates entrepreneurs, investors, and leaders that are living and working with purpose. The host, Bryce Butler, sits down with his guests and shares personal stories about what it's like to succeed and even fail. But more than that, what motivates them beyond just profit to press forward in their work and as a leader. Check out More Than Profit wherever you get your podcasts or at www.morethanprofit.fm. All right, let's get back into the episode. And why did you start this company? Why did you start a genetic testing, DNA testing, you know, company when, you know, you knew there was thousands, millions of different problems in the healthcare system? Why did you decide this was the one that you were actually going to pursue when you started pursuing 23andMe? Well, this goes to my dad a little bit. Um, like my dad's a particle physicist and, you know, again, like as you, as we all kind of grapple at various times, like, okay, what's like, why are we here? What's the meaning of life? Like, like mm-hmm. what are the basics, the fundamentals? And 
as a child of somebody who constantly had to listen to theories about neutrinos and string theory and like all these random things, like understanding the basics and the fundamentals um, gives you a core understanding for understanding, like mm-hmm. how to, how to apply those fundamentals to your life. Like physics right. is a basis for a lot of the technology in our world. Mm-hmm. And I mm-hmm. felt the same way with science that if you want to have better outcomes, either through prevention or through effective treatments, you need a better basic understanding of biology. Right. So now where does biology come from? Fundamentally goes back to that, like that point of like what, what captured me is that you have this code inside you and your genome in many ways is like the most fundamental, like that, that, dictates like a lot of aspects of you your health like what are your risks why are you responding to treatments why did you get a disease um that interplay with environment so if i think about something that could could potentially transform the whole industry it was about how do i get to the most basic level of understanding the makeup of all humans and then i think that can translate into a better path for people to prevent disease and then a better path for people to actually be able to treat disease when they do have it. Mm-hmm. And that should add efficiency in the entire system. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So once you have this idea, um, it sounds like, correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like it's a pretty like capital intensive thing to launch this, right? Like you need a lab and you need to like test this and measure this and do this and obviously have to have this like consumer facing thing. Uh, what, what were like the immediate steps you took in order to get it up and running? Well, we didn't, we decided you're right. Like there's lots of ways to do it capital intensive. And we decided right away to not be capital intensive with the lab. So we said that what the secret sauce that we can really bring is that data interpretation. Mm -hmm. And so back in those days, like we were, became like an amazing shop for people who had like a love of, you know, computer science, a love of biology, a love of genomics and statistics. Like those people could come and we could actually start to generate data and then build products for it. And, you know, my head of research now, she, she always jokes, she's like, like, I, she's like, I heard you speak and it was all about like, Hey, we're going to make science something that is accessible to people and make it fun. And again, you talk about like, okay, you got a one on the AP biology. I thought, I thought you would like, forget think, about that, but apparently not. no, no, I, it's actually kind of the motivation for a lot of, 23andMe scientists, there's kind of that joy of like, I want other people to understand and appreciate and love what we do mm-hmm. and like have that same kind of love for science. Mm-hmm. And so there's, um, there's definitely a lot of, so like that was became like one of the big motivators in the early days is not to have a lab, but to have people who are real experts in their fields Mm -hmm. and that we're creating products that are going to be fun and engaging for Mm non-scientists as well as scientists, like that you have a fun layer as well as like a more in-depth layer. So the startup costs were not super high. Mm. I know we've talked about a few different kind of crazy sort of 23andMe stories that we've heard. What's kind of the craziest one that you've heard from someone who's obviously used the product and maybe found out certain information and yeah. Well, I mean, there's, there's so many, um, I mean, there's so many crazy ones. Um, there, there's so many. So one of my favorites, which was written up actually in, I think it was in the Washington post about the story of somebody who 
um, you know, did, did 23andMe, was part of a family that, you know, was, was Christian of some sort. I don't remember which sect. Um, There's like 3,000 sects. Yeah, yes, exactly. So, but they found out they were Jewish mm, I and was one. like, what? Like, why am I Jewish? And um, no one in the family, his parents didn't know, like, I, like there was, it was like just super confusing. Then found actually that there was these cousins and was like, holy cow, like it's getting crazier. And like, um, like maybe it was half, no, it was like not related to the siblings. So it was like, there became this whole mystery. And to make a long story short, it turned out that um, when he was born, there were two families giving birth at the same time. A Jewish family who had lots of children and a Christian family who had none. And it sounds like the Jewish family had the sense of like, we have a lot of kids and the other family was like, we've had fertility issues and we haven't been able to have any. And the police officer working the shift, negotiating the swap uh-huh. between the family wow. who gave birth to the live child. Sorry, the, the, it was the Christian family who had a um, stillbirth. Mm. And so they swapped. Huh. And, um, and that's what it came from. That's probably the craziest story, I think, well. that where I was like, whoa. Um, I mean, you, I, somebody recently came with a story of, um, you know, like not finding out again, you get lots of stories of people finding out their father's not their father. And Mm -hmm. you have stories Mm -hmm. like, um, you know, the Netflix series, our father. Um, but occasionally you find out that someone finds out their mother is not their mother. Mm. And in this case, they found out that their, um, mother is actually their grandmother and their sister is their Mm. mother. Yeah. Um, we had a couple of. We, yeah, go on. No, I said if that happened to me where I was like, okay, I was like Jewish, I would have legitimately thought that I was the chosen one. Like I, that, that like I'm I'm Jesus. Like that I am literally coming back. Like, I mean, how else do you explain that? I mean, that's great besides yeah. obviously with the story that Anne just gave, but like that's a pretty like life-changing moment, which I know that you guys like don't you guys give some sort of a, a warning of like this yeah, may like you know change your life alter your life we forever. Have- <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think we have, um, we, it's really interesting. I mean, I, I tell people like when we hire them, like the thing about 23andMe, it, like we try to be fun. Like we're fun. It's yeah. a fun product. We do cilantro yeah. and Neanderthal. Mm-hmm. But fundamentally what 23andMe does is it really, um, it provides people with really meaningful information. Mm-hmm. And meaningful can take lots of different flavors. Like you can... Like I was listening to one customer testimonial this morning and it was about somebody who did 23andMe just for fun, then found out that they're a BRCA carrier, you know, they're high risk for breast cancer, you know, suddenly they remove their uterus and their breasts and, um, you know, like you get really impactful stories like that. Like the number of like serious health, you know, what I, what I'm very proud of is like it's serious health preventions. Like mm-hmm. people who were able to have, like stay healthy longer because they got this information. Right. And then you get really life-changing information about your ancestry and your identity. And I would say my other favorite story, which I just have to now tell is the, um, and this is a people magazine article as well. Um, but it was the story of somebody who was related to a grand Klansman. Um, so obviously white, mm-hmm. um, who found out that he had biracial grandchildren. Hmm. Wow. And, um, and it's the story, the people magazine, which did a really good job. It's the story of them, um, meeting mm. and 
the, you know, the, the grandfather who's like, look, like this was not what I like when I, it's not what I like dreamed about, but this is my family and I'm going to be open-minded. Right. And it's like the, the father of the children who's like, uh, was I looking for a, uh, <laughs> like a, a white supremacist? No. Um, <laughs> but you know, they meet and they're like, we're family and we're right. going to make it work. And it's a really beautiful story. Cause I think it goes, there's so much about identity and we've been trained in so many ways to look at you and say, you know, kind of from that medical perspective, like, Oh, 42 year old white male comes in with X. Mm-hmm. Like the reality is we're all more complex than that. Right. And I do think there's a real incredible experience and beauty of like saying like the world's actually, you're all one, Mm -hmm. you're super connected and you have relatives with everyone on this planet. Mm -hmm. So looking down the line as more and more people, you know, take 23me and like, there's more data out there. What do you envision happening in general? Like let's say 10, 20, 30 years from now. Well, I, so there's, there's a, there's so many things that I'm excited about. So one, um, kind of what you tapped onto, you know, healthcare is not going to change from within. And I think that one of the the big changes that happened during the pandemic is people got used to telemedicine and they got used to a virtual world. And frankly, for a company that is pioneering against, you know, a $4 trillion industry in a David Goliath moment, you have to have a new way of reaching people. And that opens up all kinds of opportunities for us to go reach people. So we are, um, I do see like an incredible opportunity for people to have real personalized prevention, Hmm. like really understanding like, you know, what are your true risks and how do I personalize your environment for you? So for example, we all hear like, Oh, eat, you know, eat well, exercise, sleep. I mean, in some ways, like there's a lot of nuances in that. Like there's some conditions where like we were talking about this recently, like fava beans can be almost fatal for people. Yeah. Like, that's a known condition. Like people should be aware. There's some conditions where people should not exercise extensively. Like they should not overdo it. So that's like almost never talked about. Mm-hmm. Like there's definitely times if you give her high risk for type two diabetes, you should go to bed earlier. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like there's data about like making sh- like when you go to bed can actually matter. So what I think is exciting is this this idea of like a true personalized world for you where we're going to help you understand like what to eat, what to sleep, how to live, like, and give those suggestions that are going to be meaningful to you. And some of them might be interventions like, Hey, you know, you're high risk for breast cancer. You should get a mastectomy or, um, you know, you're high risk for colon cancer. You need more frequent colonoscopies. Mm -hmm. So there's sometimes where it's going to be medical procedures and there's sometimes where it's going to be. Yeah. And there's so many layers to this healthcare system, right? Like there's the, you know, like there's, there's specialists and then there's the hospitals and then there's the pharmacies and the pharmaceuticals. Like there's so many kind of, there's insurance. Do you see 23andMe like vertically, vertically integrating at some point? Well, we did buy a company called Lemonade and that actually brought us. That's the insurance to, company? To, no, it, we, it's actually, it's telemedicine. Got it. So I have physicians and I have pharmacy. Got it. And that was part of, again, one from my Wall Street days where it was like, you know, the majority of the world takes generics and generics in India are like a penny. So like, why are we paying? Like they should be super cheap. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So there's all kinds of initiatives. Like Mark Cuban has his initiative. Like Walmart's had initiatives at times, mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. helping make it easier for people to get access to medications that are affordable. But more importantly for me is that medications actually have a genetic response. Mm-hmm. 
So in this epidemic we have now of, of mental health and, and depression, most of those medications have a genetic component, mm -hmm. but you're almost never tested for them. Mm -hmm. So you should, if there's like antidepressants being prescribed, knowing what your genetic you know, predisposition is for either having a response or an adverse event is important for having a, a more positive outcome. Right. So that's why we bought Lemonade is with this idea is like, I can help people take action in their health you know, prevention, like your doctor's almost never going to really coach you in like, how, what are those no. behaviors you should really change? And then second, we're going to be able to give you pharmacy. We're going to be able to say like, here's the medications that are actually right for you based on your genetics. And I know that, uh, you know, so Pat and I have been using and have our users of 23andMe for several years now, but I know there's a lot of people that are still uh, not believers or they believe that 23andMe sells like the data or gives data and cooperates with like law enforcement to sell, you know, their DNA or that you're going to clone me, which by the way, I wouldn't really mind. Um, you know, like whatever. We'll I would it. mind. Yeah. Pat and posh, like can have some other podcasts. I don't know. Uh, but one, I'd like you to, you know, address that. And AI is going to clone. you. Yeah. AI is going to clone us. Yeah. So I think that's one thing I'd love you to address. And the second thing that's really fascinating to me is that, over the t over time, I don't know. So it's been about 15, 16 years since 23andMe began, but we haven't done it for that long. But throughout the years, the data has changed, but also just gotten so much better. Like, and, and we mm -hmm. see that in our DNA relatives. We see that in our ancestry reports. Like when I first did the test or when I first, I can't really call it a test, but I guess you could. I was like part Sicilian and you could not, mm -hmm. you could not tell how excited I was because I'm a hundred percent Armenian. And I would just go around like just it, it ensured me why I love carbohydrates so much. I was like, this is mm -hmm. incredible. And now I'm zero percent Sicilian. I think uh, he texted like everyone. Yeah, I was like, saying, I am guys. literally Italian. <laughs> Instagram profile, Armenian flag, Italian flag. Um, but how has the data gotten so much better? What do you guys do? I mean, you guys are going like to the village. Like my wife and I, our parents are both from the same village, which was once in Armenia, but now in Turkey. And it knows that we are from there, which is wild because we didn't input that information. So, That's so good. I know a lot yeah. to, you know, dissect there, but just something to talk about. And I hopefully it eases the nerves of some of the folks out there that still haven't done the 23andMe test. For sure. So, okay. So first in terms of data usage, yeah. Uh, again, goes back to sort of the tenants of the company, mm -hmm. like transparency and choice. Um, so we try to be super transparent for people about how we use data. Um, so one of the first things that we ask you to do is whether or not you want to opt in to research. So we don't automatically default you. You have to choose yes or no. And what I found is that over 80, 85% of our customers are opting in to research. Mm -hmm. And they do that because I think that it does tap into that sort of like the human experience where healthcare is hard and it's not a good experience. And I think people realize that like research does need to happen to understand how we're going to move the needle forward. Mm -hmm. So huge percentage of people opt into research and then they take questions. Like they, we have questionnaires about asthma, about where you live, about what food you eat, all of that. So we do all that kind of research and at any time you can opt out. Yeah. Like at any time, if you say like we did sexual orientation study, if people don't feel comfortable with that, like don't take the survey, like just don't do it. Or you can decide you want to opt out. Like at any point in time, we really want to give you that choice. Mm -hmm. 
But a lot of that decision on doing research came from the fact that our customers who have severe illness felt really strongly that if they're at a major medical center and they give their sample, their sample's sitting in a freezer. Right. It's often not used. And and no one, like especially with a lethal illness, like mm-hmm. no one's excited about having data just stored in a refrigerator. Like they want something to happen. Mm-hmm. So that's our that's our goals with research. So we do partnerships with um, pharma companies and various you know academic centers. Um, it's almost always aggregate data unless people have specifically opted in to share their data. Mm-hmm. And that has to be like a specific additional consent where they say, yes, yeah, share my individual level data. Otherwise, like it's totally fine. The world works on summary statistics. It just like it works. So we mm-hmm. don't share that data. There's in no circumstances are we sharing data with China. Yeah. Like there was interesting, like we, it was it, like we, we had in, one of our investors came from China was from Wuxi. They're no longer an investor. But they're like the largest manufacturer of like therapeutic products in China. Like he's an amazing partner, but there was like all this swirl. Like it was kind of fascinating. We have never, like, we don't do any collaborations in China. Nothing like none of those like data collaborations, like nothing. So it's, it's, it's one of those things like it's conspiracy theory. So there's nothing in China. Um, With crime, crime is actually really interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, And 23andMe plays no part in that other than the fact that we give people, like, again, I give you choice and transparency. So one of the key things I give you is the choice to download your raw genome. Like if you bought it, you have the right to get access to your genome. So people download their genome and what they're doing is they're uploading it into a public database that is used for crime searches. Mm. And you get a number of people who look at this as like, it's a modern version of America's most wanted (laughs) and they absolutely want to be part of crime fighting. And so again, 23andMe is not part of it in any way, but there are people who feel strongly that they should be helping that. And that's where you get all kinds of like golden state killer and other issues where people are being found from that. Mm. So it's definitely, it's a consequence of people all getting their genome, but it's a choice for people to decide whether they want to download their genome and be part of that. I mean, can one even read their genome? Like if they are not an expert? Uh, I mean, the thing that was amazing, I was with Francis Collins, who was the director of NIH, the national Institute Mm -hmm. of health. And he was walking by this wall of like genomes and (laughs) who could point out me to, I was like, what? Like, this is like, it's crazy. Some, some people can identify things. Yeah. No, no, you can't read your genome. Yeah. No, it's like ACGs and T's. It's like yeah, total, yeah. it's like gibbery. Like, I mean, I think, th- but what we do is like 23andMe built a genome browser for you. Right. So if you were interested, for instance, like one of the things, again, in our pursuit of like making you all budding scientists, mm. let's say you read a story about Alzheimer's and genetics. What we wanted to enable you to do is to say like, ooh, like I want to go and like browse my own genome to see how that's relevant to me. And um, we found that there was actually a number of people who were like reading an article that's in like the pop culture. It could be in USA Today. It could be in the New York Times. Mm -hmm. And then actually going to their genome browser and saying like, oh, I want to know if that's relevant for me. Mm. So otherwise, yes, like your your human genome is more of an academic pursuit and not as many people are downloaded. Understood. Yeah. Um, so for your third question, any other questions on security before I move on? No, no. Okay. <laughs> I, I felt secured third from question. day one, so I'm good. 
<laughs> okay, good. Well, it's a real, I mean, it's a totally legitimate totally. Yeah. question. Right. I think when I think about data security, and I should just highlight this, one of the most eth- eth- interesting ethical questions that we've had to deal with is the fact that if you have a family, let's say of five people, mm-hmm. not everyone wants to be genotyped. Mm, yeah. But if one person gets information, they're learning information about the whole family. Mm. So like the most, like the other questions are relatively simple. Like we don't do anything in China. You know, we don't do anything with crime fighting, but there are absolutely ramifications of one person, a family learning genetic information and other people not wanting to know. And that's something that we try to highlight really to our customers and also highlight to individuals. Like they have to be sensitive then within family members. Like Mm -hmm. some people might not want to know. So that I think is a true um, again, it's a it's a true issue that does, you know, the ethic, ethicists love to talk about and that we like to just make sure customers are aware of. Mm-hmm. Um, so your last question about da- data getting better, um, that is frankly the most exciting thing. Mm-hmm. Like as 23andMe grows, you know, we're over 13 million people, um, we can get much better at predicting things. And like predicting location, like where your grandparents are from, where you're from, um, is really, really fun. For people to to do like especially if you know you mm-hmm. accurately like this is where my grandparents are from right. when we can actually get it right you're like wow that like really i mean it's worked. crazy i told my grandma where like our ancestors are from and she was shocked she's like wait really like i thought we were from over here i'm like nope we're from here <laughs> yeah it's yeah. it's i i mean i do love it because people like people are very rarely from just one spot like yeah. you you have your dna from different parts and it shows like you are we're all you know, we're all a compilation of our ancestors and we all have similar ancestors. So like, again, there's this commonality that we in humanity all share. Um, and like opening people's eyes to the fact that you're a citizen of the world and and the data is accurate. Like that's the thing that's amazing. So the way we get it, like going to your question, mm-hmm. we have a whole team of population geneticists and people, ancestry specialists who, who, who work on the product. And what we do is we ask customers... And in some cases, we collect samples where we're looking for specific areas. Mm. And if your four grandparents are from an area, then you can become part of that reference pool. So we're continuously making those algorithms better so that we can better tell you exactly where you're from. I mean, it was just crazy to me. I mean, I had no idea that your DNA can tell like, I mean, these are like specific villages. Like, it's crazy. I mean, like, I'm sure when you did it too, like within like Armenia and the former Ottoman Empire, I mean, there's like doesn't exist, but it's like so many villages. And you're like, how is yeah. it and that it got it so correct? Throughout the years, so much data and information that was like destroyed or just didn't make it yeah. to, to you know, present day that it's like, where, where's, really? where's all this information stored from like oh, yeah, yeah. hundreds of years ago? No, yeah. it's, it's, it's amazing. So what's, what's great is that you guys appreciate it on the ancestry side, but what is also in some ways even more exciting is on the health risk prediction. Yeah. yeah. yeah that same thing is happening. So you can't necessarily see that in the same way as what you can actually Correct. see potentially in a map. But yeah. our ability to predict like who's really at high risk for type 2 diabetes, mm. who's really at risk for heart disease. And then right. for those people, when you really have a high risk factor, focusing then is like, hey, like we should really help you manage this. And you really should get an annual blood test. You really should go in, like, you know, check these different things. And so on that note, I'm curious, what do, what are your thoughts um, on gene editing and things like CRISPR and, and whatnot? Like, how do you see this type of information and just 23andMe in general playing a part in like someone knowing like, oh, I'm more likely to get, you know, uh, 
colon count cancer or whatever because it's like in my family and then you can hopefully like not pass that down to your children it's CRISPR is an amazing tool i mean like imagine if you just had your word processor but you couldn't cut and paste yeah Mm -hmm. and then suddenly you could cut and paste you'd be like wow this is like life-changing like Mm -hmm. it's that's the equivalent it's like it's cut and paste and so it's an amazing tool um but, you know, like the difference of cut and paste when you're working in, you know, uh, a Word doc is that you have one page. In your body, you have trillions of cells. So figuring out delivery is more challenging. Like, how do you do that in all of your cells? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's an amazing tool for research. Um, you get these CRISPR libraries. People are creating all kinds of, you know, like if you take out a gene, what happens to the cell? Right. Like It's like, there's all kinds of amazing things that you mm-hmm. can do. Um, and I think you're going to start to see it more and more. Like there's some amazing treatments. Like, you know, can you fix people with a uh, um, cystic fibrosis mutation? It's a single mutation. Can you cut and paste and, you know, and change it? For a lot of these, like very, it's what's called monogenic. So like a single gene, single mutation that has, consequences in your health, like, can you actually use CRISPR to change it? I think there's going to be all kinds of amazing ways that you're going to be able to have trace. So I'm a big fan of gene therapy. It's still early days, but it's happening. And how can you just, you know, how do you educate somebody on the preventative care versus like, you know, you're about to die care. And like the way I view it is like Eastern medicine, where, you know, a lot of it is kind of focused on that prevention wellness and then you have western medicine especially i mean you go to the doctor these days every time i go to my annual checkup i leave thinking like i I don't feel really confident that everything's okay with me um like Mm -hmm. i don't really know what happened here right how do you educate the american populace on prevention because like you just mentioned we're excited about the ancestry because it's backward looking it's there it's almost like it already happened in this case, and again, and this is probably like just a philosophical question in general, it's a lot harder yeah. to look forward and be like, shit, you know, I might die in 15 years because of this if I don't do these things. Like, why yeah. should I believe like Anne and her company? Like, I, I think, so a couple, there's a lot of, to unpack that. So I personally believe that people are more open to taking care of themselves than the medical community believes. Like I would say that my experience of working in hospitals was most medical professionals have kind of written off the patient that your ability to change is your chance of changing is almost zero. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, I worked usually as a patient advocate and what I saw from patients was like a real eagerness to change, but they needed to know how. Mm-hmm. And again, going back to sort of like that healthcare system and the wrong constructs, mm-hmm. very little money is paid to helping you change. Yeah. So, and change is hard, but it's not impossible. And people are eager to try and like adopt change. So I think part of the role of 23andMe is being able to spend more of that time in a direct-to-consumer fashion, speaking a language that people speaks, and helping them educate something that's like also personalized towards them. Mm-hmm. So, one part of the purpose of like giving you some of the fun information, like your ancestry information, plus things that you can relate to, like cilantro testing, like do you love it or do you hate it, um, is that 
all those things are things that you can understand or relate to. But like a type 2 diabetes risk might not make as much sense. But if I've just told you these other things where I was really accurate, mm. and now I'm telling you about type 2, and I can give you suggestions that are like kind of meaningful about your life, and I can imagine in the future of 23andMe, more and more we'll get into that world of like behavior change and actually helping you change your behavior. I'm a big believer that like everyone given the right time and the right coaching can change. Mm. And again, when I think back on my mom, my mom was an amazing high school teacher. Like my mom is crazy in all these ways, but the number one thing, if you ask any of her students and they're like, there's like tens of thousands of now out there in the population. The number one thing is my mom always believed in her students. Like she always said, all you need is one person to believe in you. And she was that type of teacher who would say like, your first essay sucked. Your yeah. second one, it only sucked a little. Like the third one, like it's getting better. Like the fourth one, like she always gave you that chance. Like she is the true definition of like one, she believes in you. And second, she was a coach. Mm. And I think one of the most demotivating aspects of healthcare is you walk into your doctor's office and they already think that you are never going to change. Right. And they're not really like the, the most fun experience. You need someone who believes in you. And I think fundamentally, when I think back on FDA and our fight with the FDA, it was the fact that I believe in you, that you are capable of getting this information without a healthcare provider. And I proved it. I proved it that like you, 90% of you can pass like complicated exams that I actually bet a lot of clinicians could not pass mm -hmm. with like the information that we're providing. So I believe in you. So that's where I actually feel optimistic. I think 23Me can help change behavior because like one, like at a mindset, like I'm empowering you with information and I believe in you as individuals to learn this information, to absorb it. And second, I think that like as an experience, we can actually really shape behavior. And mm -hmm. I believe I'm going to be able to help change behavior for individuals to help them live a healthier life. Mm -hmm. You just need data that's personalized to you and you need it in a way that's appealing to you. I don't think there's a better note to end on. Yeah. Well, and this has been a wonderful, <laughs> wonderful conversation. Um, no, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to just like be here and share your story with us and all the wisdom that you've sort of acquired along the way. And, um, you know, the story of building this business and, you know, we're excited to see obviously where things go from here. There's so many exciting things happening in the world, uh, in, you know, technology and whatnot. That's, I feel like going to intersect. Um, so it's going to be fun to see, but thank you so much for your time. It was so great. It was really Thank fun you, with you guys. Appreciate your time.